Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, most of which are heard on Upfront and the Talkies, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Loretta Greco, who is in her 10th year as the artistic <laughs> director of the Magic Theater. Magic Theater's latest production is the Eva Trilogy by Barbara Hammond, which Loretta Greco is directing. Runs through November 12th. We're going to talk about the whole season this year, a little bit about last season, a couple of other shows. This is a world premiere, and you just told me that you were given five pages of changes, and this is being recorded Friday. Opening night is Saturday. Not five pages, but five different changes. They're clarifying changes. Places where neither Barbara and I wanted to be super explicit. She didn't want to be explicit in the writing, and I felt like it was the proper amount of mystery. And we're finding that actually we need a little more detail because audiences are leaning in a little too hard trying to figure out a couple things that we don't want them to have to waste their time with. So it's just about not spoon feeding, but just finding that calibration of how much information does the audience need to relax and be able to really be in the moment. We've done enormous amounts of rewrites this week. Barbara's been been here every day, which is incredible, part of our Playwrights in Residence program. So she's been very responsive to what's happening in rehearsal and then what's happening in previews. Give a little set up for the Eva trilogy. It's three one acts that are combined into one evening, right? Yeah, it's three plays that actually Barbara wrote as a trilogy thinking that she'd never be able to see them all put on together. When we read them, the first one, which is now titled Eden, just blew my socks off. And the second one, Roar, was a little more mysterious to me. And the third one, No Coast Road, was a total mystery to me on the page. So when I met with Barbara, and then when Barbara subsequently came to the magic for our Virgin Play series last December, we did a reading of all three, Richard. And we did it on a Sunday for Sunday matinee subscribers. And I thought, maybe people will hang in for the first one, and then maybe the second. Nobody left. They stayed for all three. And it was a pretty cathartic evening. And I felt like I felt like the sum of the three were greater than just putting on a single play. So we decided it's the magic. Let's go for the gold. And it's been an incredible experience working on all three. And each play is little under a bit under an hour because the total is three hours with intermission so right yeah it's a little less actually they started out about an hour a piece but as we've worked on them they've become a little bit more crystallized and so I think we're coming down at about 1040 with two intermissions so it's still shorter than a lot of evenings of theater and you get three plays instead of one describe the opening of the play what do we see at the beginning What you see at the beginning is a woman on her stoop in a misty, foggy evening in Rush, Ireland. It reminds me of how theater must have started, 
with an incredible story, a great storyteller. It is pretty Joycean in its stream of conscience nature. And it's told by the character Eva, who is a pretty supersized, extraordinary woman who has not let any of society's boundaries keep her from her destiny of living large and freely in the world. What it says on your website is that she goes to Ireland to take care of a sick mother and there's a life or death decision she must make which will affect her for the rest of the plays which take place over 30 years. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. The mother-daughter themes within the three plays are pretty profound. All of us know what that is to have parents that are grappling with illness. But this relationship is a little bit unique in that she has self-exiled herself. So she has been in Paris for the last 20 years. So this homecoming is pretty dramatic. The stakes are pretty high. But I think to say that that's one piece of the story would be fair because I think sometimes when you think about it being parental and about illness, you start to think about a very naturalistic, very kind of smaller than life domestic story. And this is kind of the opposite of that. This story is kind of epic and really has to do with how we live our lives and what existence means, but is definitely triggered by this event of Eva coming home to her sick mother. So on some level, I don't want to draw too many comparisons, but if we look at, say, Baltimore Waltz, which takes place all over the globe at different (laughs) times and kind of takes you away from reality, is that sort of what's happening here at times? It embraces the theatricality of, you know, live theater in the way that Baltimore Waltz does. But that's where sort of the comparison ends. The first play is like being inside a mindscape. It's as if I could sit on your shoulder and hear your thoughts. The second play is aural. It is about the noise, the roar, the chatter that follows us, influences us, debilitates us, sometimes without us even realizing pretty much 24-7. And so that experience is sonically driven and ideologically driven. And the third is a dreamscape. And it's very visual. It's filmic. It takes place in nature, in Corsica, in a clearing. So the play does kind of move from the very internal to the very external. But each of the three plays, in terms of the way they're relating to you in the audience, really, they each deploy different tools, and I think the experiences are quite unique. You mentioned ideological. George C. Wolfe used to say that the only place left in culture for ideas is in the theater. And this trilogy is asking questions about the boxes that we're meant to peacefully abide by and exist within. It is asking questions of the spirit. It's asking religious questions. It's asking about how do we live a life? And it's asking about who do we belong to? Who does our family belong to? And what is the price of living a fully liberated existence? 
I'm really proud of that. And I think sometimes when we talk about the work here being substantive and asking essential questions about the way we live, sometimes I think people think, oh, that sounds like it's medicinal, you know, or it's like agitprop. These are three gorgeous pieces of literature, but they are, I hope, prodding at some internal questions that I think we all should be asking. I think that all good plays are political in some nature, and some of those are really looking at personal politics. When you say the play is political, a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction in terms of don't want it, don't right. need a don't need a lecture. Here in the Bay, it's like, well, why preach to the choir, you know, for most things, or I don't care for agitprop, but I feel like this play is deeply political and it's deeply personal. One of the things that it's really grappling with is the right to gracefully exit life with some dignity. And certainly that is topical right now as the laws begin to change and as the medical profession begins to wrestle with what are the social and religious and spiritual, what are the trappings of that? What are the ways we need to relearn and think about how we contextualize the law? So in some ways, the plays are doing that, but in such a personal, cathartic way that it certainly wouldn't be the lead thing I'd say to you is we're doing three political plays. Loretta Greco, before we move on to the other plays of the season, at least the first part takes place in Ireland. Are you prepping people with an Irish accent? Oh my gosh, yeah. They've been working on their dialects since they were cast. We have an incredible dialect text coach, Jessica Berman. She's just wonderful. She just works so organically, but really rigorously. So it is a trick, right? Because that dialect, the Dublin dialect, it has variations like all dialects in terms of class and then you always get to the point where it gets too good and no one can understand a word and so you have to pull back for me it became a challenge of the writing is so damn gorgeous the writing is so poetic and the dialect is so delicious that the actors were just relishing in both and we couldn't really get anything, any attack and I, you know. So we had to really back up and say, the poetry has to be surfed, the dialect has to be lightly inhabited. And so calibrating that, dialing it up, dialing it back has been part of the, the preview process for sure. I mean, you know, we all take our cues from Shakespeare is that those first two minutes, some say 10, but I think you grab the audience in the first two. It is about adjusting the ear, whether that is us working on Infoniso and having that that beautiful Nigerian dialect of her neighborhood, or we're working with Penelope Skinner and we're working on <laughs> Oxfordshire dialect where she came in from London. We were probably... 15 rehearsals in and she said oh my god it's perfect no one will understand a word mm -hmm. and we had to you know but it is about the audience for us and eva's trilogy is both the dialect and the musicality of the irish and the musicality of what i like to say barbara's script which is really a score and so adjusting the ear from our day-to-day, -day, what comes in and what comes out is part of the first few minutes of the play. Loretta Greco, all three of these shows, which means three of the four shows this season, 
our world premieres. Now, I know years ago when I talked to you, you talked about how world premieres are okay, but the real thing is doing a second or a third. Have, Have you changed that? No, not at all. It's funny because both Gangster of Love and Real to Real are from writers that have been in our unofficial family, you know, who Magic has been an artistic home to for, you know, many, many years. And so Gangster was a commission, a Gerbodi Foundation commission, which we've been working on for a few years. And this is the spring that it was set to premiere. At the same time, John Kolvenbach's Real to Real, we thought we were doing a first read at Virgin last year and realized that really it needs to just move right into rehearsal. And so there we had it. Sonia Fernandez and I, our associate artistic director, we made a pact that we wanted to find at least a couple new writers to augment Magic's family. And Barbara Hammond was one of those writers that we just came upon through the good taste and generous collegial spirit of Emily Morris at New Dramatist. So Emily called me and said, I've got someone that you're going to die for. And I couldn't get these scripts faster and then to New York faster to meet Barbara. So it just ended up that, oh my gosh, here we go. Three world premieres, huge. It is big for us. And especially with Eva being a trilogy. Thank God Taylor's was a second production. The producer of the New York 24-hour decade, History of Popular Music, really wanted to work with Taylor to give him a little shelf life. And he said he would only do it once, the 24. But the other thing he said when he first signed on with Pomegranate is, he said, we have to bring this to San Francisco. And so they called us. So thank God that wasn't starting from scratch, but it was about reconceiving the event for four evenings. Working on 24 Decade was an extraordinary collaboration that was so unprecedented and unusual. With Magic and The Current and Pomegranate Arts and Stanford Live, I mean, it was really cool because we're like-minded but very different sized and missioned, but it really did take a village. And Taylor really wanted Magic to be a part of it. And Carol and I have been stewing over potential things, ways to collaborate. And Pomegranate Arts, Linda Brownback, I mean, it was just, Jamie and I had an incredible time with it. And our audience was blown away. I just did a donor dinner and we talked about Taylor and I didn't drive the conversation, Richard, at all, for two solid hours. And the median age was not 30 in that room. People's lives were altered by that event. To answer your question directly, second productions are so important. It was just a timing thing of what we had in the hop or what we had in our feeder system. And we thought if we were going to do a season that had three world premieres, this was the right one because we're closing out our 50th anniversary. And last year we did do two revivals, which was glorious and a lot of fun. But to get back to the work at hand of really building new plays, we felt like, all right, this feels right. Is Real to Real a one-person play? No, it's a four-person play. It's about a couple over the course of their lives together. The couple's played by a pair of younger folks and a pair of less young folks. It's Kolvenbach. I mean, it's just gorgeous and heartfelt and simple in a way that 
feels really essential. He's digging at what makes couples work over time. It's funny and really interesting. I don't want to give too much away, but he's exploring sound and what sound tells us about coupling. If you've seen Goldfish or Mrs. Whitney or Sister play here at The Magic, you'll probably feel like Real to Real is a maybe not a sibling, but a cousin. So you will feel the familial traits of John's gorgeous writing and his quirky, delicious sense of humor and the way that he pulls at our heartstrings. And I think you'll see an artist taking a slight turn in experimenting in a new form. Is that kind of an experiment for the magic doing different things with sound? You know, it's odd because this play is doing the same thing in Enter the Roar, the second play. So maybe there's something in the air, in the water. But I will say there's nothing like sound in our beautiful, intimate thrust. You know, when we do anything with a little bit of music, anything with Foley, it's alive in a way because it's so intimate, because the audience is wrapped around it, that it has a kind of visceral primacy that I think speaks to why we all come to the theater. So I'm excited about it. I don't know if this is the next wave. We'll talk about that next season. The third play is uh, Jessica Hagedorn's Gangster of Love. Filipino immigrants settle in uh, the hate in the 1970s. You're directing it. It has live music, poetry, and music videos? It does. This is beautifully autobiographical and unlike Dog Eaters, is set here. Not just here in the U.S., but here in San Francisco. It's a love letter to what San Francisco used to be in the 70s. And I know I'm just a baby just being here now a decade, but a lot of people have said to me, oh, Loretta, if you only knew what it used to be like. And Jessica not only had the pleasure of being here, but this was the place where she came of age as a young woman, as a writer, as an artist, and uh, through music and poetry. So it is an adaptation of her second novel of the same title, But what's incredible is that it's been so long since that novel came out that so many of those people that she was writing about and protecting some of the more fascinating familial tales, they're all gone now. Not that this is literally autobiographical word for word, but I think that that fact that so much time has passed has liberated her. And so the writing is very exciting. And although it totally resembles the novel, it's not just a page-to-stage translation. It really is its own thing. And she's tried to include the many, many people and many, many places here in San Francisco that shaped her and her writing. I think it's going to be a blast from the past, quite literally. Well, that's when I moved out here. And San Francisco was very, very different You know, it's such an interesting thing to think about her, you know, she and her brother and her mother arriving on a ship from Manila and landing in San Francisco and all that they thought America was juxtaposed with all that San Francisco was and what those challenges and opportunities brought. It's a really cool story and told in the way that only Jessica Hagedorn could tell. So we're really excited about bringing her back. 
if Eva trilogy is delivering new lines 24 hours before the opening, <laughs> and these are two other new plays, then the same thing's going to happen with Real to Real and Gangster of Love, right? Well, you know, every writer is different. I don't think Barbara would mind me sharing this with you, but I spent some time with her out on the Cape in August before we started rehearsal here. And she was a little wary of the rewriting situation and really felt like her comfort zone was to have as much of it done by first day of rehearsal and then a little bit in, you know, inside of the beginning of rehearsal. And it's been really gratifying for me, you know, and also just to think about what magic can offer that's really unique is that she's been here every single day. And so she's been responsive. I mean, I'll be in the middle of a scene and she'll come up during a break and say, I think I think I can make this easier. I think let's try this. And what do you think about that? And she's opened it up so I can also write her at night and say, would you think about this? I think we might need a little more here or a little less there. Kolenbach is very different. By the time I get his quote-unquote first draft, he's probably been working on it for four years, and it's probably like his 36th draft. He can't release until he's really lived, breathed, sweated, wrestled with something. And so he does enter rehearsal with something that is nearly ready and complete. He will make little adjustments Jessica is somewhere in the middle. She loves being at table with actors and hears things and is responsive. And then towards the end, she really wants to settle in. She'll keep an ear out for anything that's necessary, but she gets most of it done in the rehearsal process so that previews are about little tweaks. But then again, she's doing one play and Barbara's doing three. And I think part of what Barbara's been doing coming back to the Eva trilogy is considering what it is that we're doing all three. So when she wrote them thinking that they were three separate plays, she didn't know that they'd ever be produced together. So there are things in the third play that we learn of in the first play that now we don't need in the third play because we've all been together. So some of it is sculpting and pruning in that way that's unique. But everybody works differently, really, in terms of the revision thing. We just try to open the opportunity up to say, you can be fluid and flexible, you can be responsive. And these are the kind of creative teams and actors that we've brought to the table. Loretta Greco, the last time I talked to you, it was in Berkeley, and you were doing a play for Cal Shakes. You've done plays for ACT, and then you're directing two plays at The Magic. Is there a real difference for you directing a play where you're the artistic director as opposed to Carrie Perloff or I guess it was John Moscone at Cal Shakes? There's a big difference. You know, we have Jamie Mayer helming as managing director, and we have a great general manager and a great development team. So I'm doing a lot less these days, which is nice in terms of I'm wearing, I shouldn't say I'm doing less, but I'm wearing fewer hats. But what's glorious about being an artist at another theater is you get to be an artist. And you're not thinking about ticket sales. You're not thinking about promotions. You're not thinking about what the graphic looks like. You're not trying to macro or micromanage anything but your room. 
So, you know, being at Cal Shakes, being back at ACT, it's just glorious. It's a beautiful juxtaposition just to be there and sort of have tunnel vision in terms of how do you bring this play to life and not have to think about all of the other things. It's also great fun because then I get to collaborate with other producers like Carrie and John, which I love. And John comes back to you then for uh, yeah, for and all then the John else. comes back. He's done two shows here. He did the Happy Ones, Julie Myatt's beautiful play. I guess that was maybe five years ago, and then he had always wanted to do Baltimore Waltz, Richard. And I felt like when we decided we would revive it, I wanted to make good on a promise to him that if we ever did it, it was his. So, yeah. I talked to him about that. And Paula Vogel was here giving him. Yeah. It was really special. You know, Paula is, she's a remarkable advocate and champion of Newark all over the country. And aside from being the greatest mentor and teacher and a great, great playwright in her own right, she was just ridiculously generous. You know, Indecent was in previews and rehearsal at the exact same time. And she left Broadway to come here and spend days with us. She flew and left to be here for last preview and opening as well as the first few days of our first weeks of rehearsal. She was Paula. She was generous to all and inspired everyone. And it was a beautiful thing to watch her and John work. One other question about those three productions that you did, ACT, Cal Shakes, and here. Okay, here you've got Thrust. Cal Shakes, you've got this huge outdoor space, which is different. And then ACT, it's at the Geary, which is, you know, a standard old-fashioned proscenium. For you as a director in working within those different spaces, are you looking at different things or, or not? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've directed on that Geary stage four times, and that is maybe one of the greatest blessings ever from from Carrie because, you know, I don't want to go off and on a political tangent that is important but not vital to this conversation. It's hard for women directors because we do tend to get pegged for the small spaces. And working at the Geary, I mean, the first time I did it was in 2000, and that's bigger than a lot of Broadway houses. So that the craft stage there is very different from working in a 150-seat thrust. I walk into our space here, and every day I think I love this space more than anything, and it's true. But I am very much aware that if I don't keep my chops in terms of working in a larger space, that you can tend to lose them. So it was great to be back there after it'd been a, it'd been a while because we hadn't been able to make schedules work. I hadn't directed at the Geary since I took this job. So it was fantastic. Working at Cal Shakes was a whole other experience because I had never worked outdoors before. I worked at OSF, but I worked in the Bomer and I worked when they still had the um, the Swan, Black Swan open. So I'd never done the outdoor space. It was a total trip because your rhythm, the rhythm of the process is different because when you hit the stage and you're out there, you have to go late to be able to see what it's going to look like. It was really interesting, and I'd never worked with cows in the background mooing before. And I'll tell you a quick fun story is, I think it was, we had, it was maybe the next to last preview 
of um, Life is a Dream is the Calderon that Nilo Cruz adapted that I directed there. I brought my daughter, Sophia, so she would have been, I don't know, 13 or 14 then. She gives great notes. She's really harsh. I mean, she, she does not couch anything. So she and I are sitting next to each other and it starts to drizzle and then it starts to rain. It rained the whole time. No one left. Nobody in the audience, they just lifted umbrellas, they poured another glass of Chardonnay, and they just kept watching. We got to the point where the stage was so slippery and we were coming up on a big fight scene with with huge set that was very high, and John's like, we need to take a break. So we took a break, we went into, into the building, I restaged the fight scene really fast, we went back out 15 minutes later, everybody had stayed, Richard. Everybody came back. We finished out the play. It was just one of those gorgeous, there is nothing like live theater. And there's nothing like live theater outdoors. So, yeah, I love that experience. It was pretty great. One of the things about that is that you realize when the environment shifts like that and you've got to deal with cold weather or, you know, suddenly it's a family, the people on stage, and the people in the audience. You can't get that anywhere else. Absolutely, you're sharing the environment. That's right, if a cow moves in a very poignant moment, everybody's gonna giggle together. (laughs) There's no pretending that didn't happen, you know? It's so beautiful out there. I've, I've, I've gotten out a little bit this summer. I love it out there. John did such a, his legacy there is incredible and I couldn't be happier about Eric Ting being there and um, continuing to work with my great colleague, Susie Falk. Loretta Greco, Theater Works, Berkeley Rep, ACT are all now looking for new artistic directors. I posed this question to John. I'm not going to tell you what he said. I said, the issue is that if an individual theater company is looking for an artistic director, they're looking for the best person. At the same time, if all three select middle-aged white men, there's something wrong. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And I mean, it's tough, right? This is a complicated question because it's not a fun time to be a white guy either, you know? So it's tough. I'm not trying to be politic here because I have pretty strong feelings. Any way that I answer is going to be polarizing to someone, but... I think that the question is about mindful succession. So I think it's a two-pronged challenge. I think it's yes, there are a lot of white guys running theaters, but it's also about there are a lot of white guys running theaters who never leave. Diversity comes in a lot of different uh, forms. And I think, you know, for us, it's been, you know, the work on our stage is, is pretty diverse. Our audiences get more and more diverse, but they're not as diverse as I'd like them to be. Our staff is fairly diverse, not as diverse as I'd like them to be. Um, The same thing with the board, and I think that that is a pretty universal challenge as we're all trying to figure out what is the organic way to have our work and the people that make the work and support the work look like the world around us, which is more and more beautifully and wonderfully diverse in all ways, culturally, economically. It's tough. So I think that it's a mix of really trying. I mean, I know that most of the good headhunters, the good search firms are are pretty woke 
now or are getting are, are awakening in terms of that it's a new day and inclusion and i think you know the statistics seem to show that it's just tougher for women and artists of color when it comes down to a board wanting you to demonstrate literal experience and so the people that tend to have the literal experience already are the white men and so it is about being able to take some leaps of faith you know at the same time someone like eric ting at cal shakes like that's not a leap of faith that's like picking somebody that's extraordinarily well prepared and an artist of note who happens to be of color i i get tongue-tied because I always say something that pisses people off because I also think that excellence needs to be a part of the conversation. So I think there are a lot of us, I'm only including myself as a, as a woman, but we want to be considered for more opportunities. And I do think that if all of those theaters go to white men, there is going to be a ruckus made. What John said, he raised an interesting point, which was backed up actually by the fact that Carrie Perloff came from nowhere. Yeah you know, and transformed ACT. And he said that, as you say, if you're sticking within people who've done it before, you're going to get people who've done it before. But he said there are so many excellent people out there who haven't had a chance, which opens more doors. Right. I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that the board at the time when Carrie was was hired had a sense of spirit, certainly, because she was young and CSC is tiny, but they saw the vision and they were willing to take a leap of faith and to help mentor her as a leader in the ways that she didn't come packaged with. You know, she has ample skills and brilliance and I I can't imagine saying no to her in an interview, but I do want to give credit because I think there are a lot of boards that wouldn't have made that choice solely because she hadn't demonstrated literally what they need. And I think that when you have a risk-averse board or search committee, that sometimes hinders the more creative possibilities of how you could have a new vision for the future. The controversy at Marin, do you just not want to deal with that? Are you willing to talk about it? I was completely in rehearsals, so I do not know all of it. I had several calls. People asked me for advice. And I think that it is very easy that when you're so passionate about creating a new work and commissioning a writer of Thomas's reputation, I think that Jason's heart, I have to believe, was in the right place. I wish... I wish that there was uh, more opportunity to have a forum to address some real, real questions about the thinking. You know, it's tough. I mean, grandeur, it was not the same thing, but we got ahead of, I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing is, is I think to get ahead of a controversy like that and really forecast the possibility of one, the writer has to be in on that. From my perspective, like when we were working with Hanang, with Grandeur, with a prominent African-American, also a drug dealer, and the perception of why is magic with a white woman director doing this play about one of the most famous you know, African-American musicians, 
Why is a Filipino writer writing about this African-American man? We had huge substantive conversations for about 18 months before we went into rehearsals about all of those controversies and how to try and get ahead of them. But I think that the thing that I had is I had a writer that not only wanted to, but was one of the first to say, we need to talk about this. And um, that allowed me to say, we need to talk about that. So that we got the company ahead of it. We had nightly talkbacks where we were addressing some of the stereotypes that the African-American community rightfully was upset about and to really talk about the role of theater. So I don't know if Marin proceeded to do that. I just saw one of the statements that Jason put out. I feel terrible because I know that Jason's heart is in the right place. And yet I think it was it was a little tone deaf not to imagine that this would be controversial and really hurtful and, and racist to a good group of people. I saw a play about this relationship. I mean, now I'm going to just age myself, date myself, but I think 30 years ago at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. So this is not new territory. You know, that's why a second production is important so that you can... Right. But I think that our community is much more evolved than 30 years ago. And I don't remember it being a love story 30 years ago. And I don't know or don't mean to say that that was anybody's intent. I didn't see it. I read a little bit about it when people called my attention to it, asking for some advice. And I, I, I recused myself from reading the comments. Consensual sex is not consensual when you're a slave. And I know that Thomas is very interested in pushing the envelope, and I think that he goes about it in a way that is organic for him. I don't know if it ended up being a town hall or uh, it may have may have opened up, but uh, I certainly hope that there was some place where there could have been that rigorous conversation and some good would come to everybody from hearing all, all sides, if you can think of this as something that has sides. Loretta Greco. Okay, so you've got these two plays this year. you have any plays outside the magic that you're uh, starting to think about? I have a couple things, but it's really premature, so I'm not going to say. But I have a couple of, um, of projects brewing. You know, it's nice to be here and I have a 17-year-old daughter here, so it's hard for me to go out of town. But as, as children will do, mine is going to go off to college, uh, God willing, in the fall. And so, yeah, I probably will be starting to dip my toes back out in the national scene. And looking forward to that. It always, you know, the thing even, you know, going to ACT or Cal Shakes or going back to New York or being at South Coast Rep, you know, it's, you always bring back more vitality home when you have a little bit of time away. At the same time, I, I came here to be at the Magic. I'm still having a really good time 10 years later. You've been listening to an interview with Loretta Greco, the artistic director of the Magic Theater and the director of the Eva Trilogy by Barbara Hammond, which is three one-act plays put together as one play. Playing through November 12th at The Magic. For more information, you can go to magictheater.org.